Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, March twenty eighth episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen Arate. You can find us at poetsandmuses dot com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either on poetsandmuses dot com or at the upper right hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. Since December 2018, we have highlighted over 100 poets from eight countries on five continents, and we hope to continue to do that with your support. And you can do that by going to poetsandmuses.com/donate and donate via either PayPal or your preferred credit card. We have also recently launched the Pam Poetry Project in collaboration with District Four Poetry. You can find out more information about that at poetsandmuses.com/events. With us today is Tyrone Ross Thompson, with whom I will be discussing his poem "Salilo Falls Inundation" and my poem "Words and Actions." Before we do that, however, I am going to go over some virtual poetry events taking place during the week of March 29th. On Monday, March 29th. From 8:15 p.m. Amsterdam time, Labyrinth will be hosting their weekly open mic, and you can find out more information at labyrinthamsterdam.nl/poundsignevents. Again, that's labyrinthamsterdam.nl/poundsignevents. From 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, City of Asylum will be hosting their Between Poetry and Performance, turning emotion into visual metaphor with Danny Cho. You can find out more information at cityofasylum.org. Again, that's at cityofasylum.org. From 8 p.m. Central Daylight Time, Frizzy Productions will be hosting his Poets Playground We Play Clean open mic via Instagram Live at poets underscore playground underscore. Again, that's at poets underscore playground underscore. On Tuesday, March 30th, from 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Urban Word NYC will be hosting their first draft open mic for those between the ages of 13 and 23. This is a virtual writing workshop and open mic series facilitated by Roya Marsh. You can find out more information and register at urbanwordnyc.org/firstdraft. Again, that's urbanwordnyc.org/firstdraft. From 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. The Writers Center will be hosting their curated conversations with Jacqueline Bodorama and Cynthia Hoag. You can find out more information by visiting writer.org/reading-events. Again, that's writer.org/reading-events. From 9 p.m. Central Daylight Time, Frizzy Productions will be hosting his Poets Playground We Play Dirty open mic. Via Instagram Live at poets underscore playground underscore. Again, that's poets underscore playground underscore. On Wednesday, March thirty first, from six p.m. Amsterdam time, Word Up Amsterdam will be hosting their Inspiration Factory Writing Workshop by Janice. You can find out more information and register at wordupamsterdam.weebly.com/workshops.html. 
Again, that's wordupamsterdam.weebly.com forward slash workshops.html. From 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, National Book Foundation and the Center for Imagination in the Borderlands will be hosting their Literature for Justice, Locating Freedom, featuring a conversation between Dion Brand and Ruth Wilson Gilmore, moderated by Natalie Diaz. You can find out more information at nationalbook.org forward slash events hyphen calendar. Again, that's nationalbook.org forward slash events hyphen calendar. From 5 to 6.30 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, Asian American Justice and Innovation Lab will be hosting the fifth of their eighth session, A Poetic Envisioning of Our Collective Future with Carol Scott. You can find out more information on facebook.com forward slash A-A-J-I-L dot org. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash A-A-J-I-L dot org. From 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, Beyond Baroque Literary Arts will be hosting the first of their four 30 in 30 workshop with poet Brandon Constantine. You can find out more information at beyondbaroque.org or slash intensive underscore workshops html. Again, that's beyondbaroque.org or slash intensive underscore workshops html. From 8 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, Beyond Baroque Literary Arts will be hosting their poetry workshop with Beth Ruscio. You can find out more information at beyondbaroque.org forward slash free underscore workshops html. Again, that's beyondbaroque.org forward slash free underscore workshops html. On Thursday, April 1st, from 9 p.m. Paris time, Paris Lit Up will be hosting their weekly open mic. You can find out more information at parislitup.com forward slash open hyphen mic. Again, that's parislitup.com forward slash open hyphen mic. From 6 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, Beyond Baroque Literary Arts will be hosting a reading featuring Paul Vangelisti and Dennis Phillips. You can find out more information at beyondbaroque.org forward slash calendar html. Again, that's beyondbaroque.org forward slash calendar html. From 7 to 8 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, the Virginia G. Piper Center for Creative Writing will be hosting their monthly salon, Get Lit. Every month is Poetry Month, featuring me, Imogen A-Rate. You can find out more information and register at piper.asu.edu forward slash calendar. Again, that's piper.asu.edu forward slash calendar. On Friday, April 2nd, from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. British time, Poetry LGBT will be hosting their Speak Your Truth writing workshop. And you can find out more information and register by messaging Andrina Leanne on her Instagram at survivor.andrina.leanne. Again, that's at survivor.andrina.leanne. Andrina is spelled A-N-D-R-E-E-N-A. 
and Leanne is spelled L-E-E-A-N-N-E. From 7 p.m. West African time, Graciano and Warham will be hosting his Corona versus Open Mic via Instagram Live at Graciano and Warham. That's at G-R-A-C-I-A-N-O-E-N-W-E-R-E-M. Again, that's at G-R-A-C-I-A-N-O-E-N-W-E-R-E-M. From 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, City of Asylum will be hosting Ada Limon, live reading and conversation presented by Autumn House Press. You can find out more information at cityofasylum.org. Again, that's at cityofasylum.org. On Saturday, April 3rd, from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, the PAM Poetry Project will be hosting our Poetry Writing Workshop. You can find out more information at poetsandmuses.com forward slash events. Again, that's at poetsandmuses.com forward slash events. From 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, the Claremont Library will be hosting their Garden of Verses reading, featuring, among many other readers, our past poet guest, Felicia Zamora. You can find out more information at facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 237-100-071-304-3352. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 237-100-071-304-3352. From 2 to 4 p.m. Central Daylight Time, Defunct Magazine will be hosting their Writer's Montage Workshop with Raquel Aben Van Dalen, Patricia Corral, Kevin Dublin, and Dylan Seelsel. You can find out more information at defunctmagazine.com. That's D-E-F-U-N-K-T-M-A-G.com. Again, that's D-E-F-U-N-K-T. MAG.com. On Sunday, April 4th, from 5 to 7 p.m. British Summertime, Poetry LGBT will be hosting their open mic, and you can find out more information at Poetry LGBT either on Instagram or Twitter. Again, that's at Poetry LGBT either on Instagram or Twitter. From 6 to 8 p.m. Paris time, Paris Lit Up will be hosting their monthly writer's workshop, and you can find out more information and sign up at parislitup.com forward slash the hyphen writers hyphen workshop. Again, that's parislitup.com forward slash the hyphen writers hyphen workshop. And now let us welcome our poet guest of the week, Tyrone Ross Thompson. Hi, Tyrone. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Hello. Hi. So, Tyrone, you brought with you your poem, Salilo Falls Inundation. Did I say that right? Uh, Salilo Falls Inundation, yeah. Oh, Salilo Falls Inundation. Okay, thank you. So before we get into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, Tyrone Ross Thompson. 
or why I'm from a disperse of the Columbia River, contributing writer for Lasso Indians. I've been host of Open Mic for five years before the shutdown. Mm-hmm. I've been writing for Lasso Indians, Native Food Magazine. And I started with Native Youth Leadership Alliance, which was a national group that had various students throughout the states. That's kind of where I first got inspired to share poetry. The first time I read was at Eastern Washington University mm-hmm. for Indigenous Peoples Day. Mm-hmm. So there's an incident where I had to withdraw from college, mm-hmm. and then poetry became my kind of constant outlet to develop my writing skill to identify what I needed to try to express with my own feelings. Then it kind of grew and grew. Mm-hmm. It seems like you started sharing your poetry during college. Did you yeah. start writing before then, poetry? and? Yeah, it'd be off and on. It'd just kind of be scribbles. And sometimes I'd just copy lyrics. Mm. When we're organizing Indigenous Peoples Day, mm-hmm. where we're the host, and we're deciding, well, who's going to speak? Mm-hmm. Who's going to speak? Who's going to, we as hosts, do something? Mm-hmm. While we're celebrating this day, and so our friend was like, "Well, you write poetry. Can you write something?" Mm. And I wasn't planning on sharing anything. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Yeah, I guess I can fill in the spot." Mm. Got to introduce who we were and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's kind of how it started. It was just something where, well, you write, can't you share? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then it turned into. Like a powerful one, because there's a lot of students that I identified with, because we're away from home. Mm. We, you know, we're in this new environment, but we don't have our family. Like We grew up with such large families and large kinships. Mm-hmm. That is kind of like a foreign experience. Mm. But then I start hearing people's fears, people's concerns, and a lot of it was about suicide. And so I didn't tell anybody I was going to speak on suicide and I just identify what people were going through. Right. And I wanted to let them know that they weren't that they weren't isolated. Right. And so it's kinda of like a moment where it was sudden. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Like this this was a dialogue that we needed. Because I think during that same time there's like eleven people that passed away that were our age. Mm. Back on the Nespers reservation. Mm-hmm. And like even though I didn't live there, I'd, I'd visit there, mm-hmm. and just to hear through other people the pain that they're going through, that needed to be shared, it needed to be dialogue, because that could happen to any of us. Right. Because there's so many of us that are there, mm-hmm. and like sort of, it was just really a power moment to be able to express it, to not not feel isolated, and not feel secluded or excluded excluded or anything like that. Right. And then, so that's kind of, that's how it really started. Okay. And then it just grew over the years to where I was utilizing what I was studying to tell these stories, tell other people's stories, my story. Right. Connect with others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is something very raw and immediate about poetry that allows us to connect our feelings with other people's feelings, sort of use our words to knit this kinship. 
Do you happen to remember what your first poem was uh, and when you wrote that? It was 2010. Mm. I can't really remember exactly which one mm. that I shared because it's been so, so long ago. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was pretty much free verse. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like the structure that, that I use now. Right. That is something I would do want to look at, try to see how it started and where it ended, mm -hmm. or where, where it is now. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of poets who don't necessarily come into poetry in a formal way, um, like in a, in a school setting necessarily. Maybe they heard poetry in school, but they write their own thing, and then as we write, we continue to write, and especially as we feel more and more confident in our ability to just express our emotions through writing, we start to dabble in form, right, and challenge ourselves yeah. through form. I don't know if you have uh, thought about whether poetry for you is first and foremost just a mode of self-expression, because I think for different people, the priority is different. For me, it's like, first and foremost, a mode of self-expression. So I don't, I'm not as interested in form. So I don't know if, if that's... Yeah, I think, yeah, I think how I've done it was self-expression. Mm -hmm. But also trying to find a space where who else is going through these things and who else is trying to identify where they fit in. Because mm -hmm. even though we have all these ideals of decolonized in solidarity mm -hmm. it's very much hard to find our own space within family mm. and it's kind of like yeah we say these things for the public persona but behind the scenes it's very very vile it's very chaotic so how do you find that space to mm. where you can identify well this is what i went through mm. and we can't even dialogue about it but you're sharing something public that's not how we're unified. So I think how it grew from identifying suicide through the political aspect of tribal politics mm -hmm. is how like it's really grown to where I'm more vocal and aware of how people interact with each other. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how it grew into more and more and identifying what the experiences are and trying to let people know that, that we can do better. Yeah, I think for people who are looking outside in, it's very easy to say, oh, you know, Native Americans, they're all, you know, very close-knit community. There is that, that idea that everybody is somehow in community with each other, whereas that's not necessarily the case, especially for the individual navigating the dynamics of indigenous communities or living within indigenous communities both on and off the res. So I thought it was really interesting, some of these dynamics that you express through this poem. So I was wondering if you could read it for us and maybe then tell us more about that. Yeah, sure, that's no problem. The following poem was written 2015 on March 10th. Mm -hmm. Slala Falls inundation. It was two decades before the hereditary Wyampum bloodline created and tried to effectively speak at the behest of the people to be acknowledged because subjugated forces had limited people from speaking for their own living. 
the unconscious divide and conquer, maybe, with a colonial trick and created fear of each other, part-time sovereignty, part-time brother and sister, imperial rule against the odds at one another, all for greed, institutionally fed, a legacy of oppression, within a century the repression forces destroyed indigenous humanity, a continuation of a few voices for collective agreement that dictate lies a small sentiment because decisions are based on monetary value and decayed spiritual life of intermixed beliefs and habitual traits that became a loss to spiritual power. Tribes are split and assimilated. Some circles are a patchy network of colonized beings, only sticking to the written rules, but living like they're part of the status quo, a heart depleted and conflicted from the start. These leaders today speak of power in place of ownership to a sacred place, continually forgetting this water is a life force, giving creation to all forms of life beyond their comprehension, because they're led astray by titles, ownership, and recognition of imperial titles that is surreal to how the nations once lived. The dreamer faith that once thrived at the center of it all, a divine power that connected the indigenous nations and trade center that became a victim of an environmental holocaust. The life center of the Columbia River lost its spiritual connection and at the same time recognition of a people to the five islands and a connection to what was once a pristine place in all the world. The islands have markings of our indigenous place in this world. It reminded the ignorance of Western progress and to remember a legacy that was once a lot of false and to never forget this crime against indigenous humanity but that this oppressive force can never wipe away that history or memory. And so that's my recognition of Slyla Falls Fish Committee. Mm. And so the Slyla Falls Fish Committee was established like in the early 1940s. Mm. I think it was 1938 when it was officially established. Okay. It wasn't just Slyla Village. It was Rock, uh, Rock Creek Village and it's for like across from Slilo. It's uh, Wishram and Lyle and all these various places mm-hmm. along the Columbia River. And that's to signify the River Indians. Mm-hmm. And so there are all these all these families from each longhouse. They got together and they established their, I guess, government entity, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so they, they wanted to renegotiate the Dalles Dam further away from Slilo. The Dalles Dam and the John Day Dam. And they wanted the Dalles Dam to be further away, mm-hmm. further west. And, but since they weren't recognized as the Slilo was Wawaiapa village, since that tribe wasn't recognized as a treaty tribe, mm-hmm. the Yakima and other surrounding tribes stated that they weren't significant there negotiation. So it's a recognition of how even though they attempted to try to put on record their word, they didn't want the site, mm-hmm. it was still put into paper that they wanted. This is what they wanted. This is They try to prevent the flooding of it. Mm. So the, the monetary value is in reference to the 21 million the Yakima Nation took at the time. 
lot of this start, you know, it was the survey in the Columbia River started in 1911. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was like an ongoing decades long battle, you know, like a core battle. And is people were well prepared for it on both sides. Mm. It sounded like really hectic because my grandfather was Moses Jerome Thompson. Mm -hmm. And his father was Henry, Henry Pusher Thompson. Mm -hmm. Henry's father was Tommy Cooney Thompson. Mm -hmm. And Tommy Cooney Thompson was recognized as the last savage chief before the dam mm -hmm. flooded our home. Mm -hmm. So it's recognition of my lineage and also the kinships that supported his leadership. Mm -hmm. you know, so it's trying to get back to identifying how we connect with land, not just by all these definitions where people think it's leadership within the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Mm -hmm. Like it's trying to reteach, reteach people. That's not the authority. Mm -hmm. They don't get to tell us how to define what our source is. So it's kind of like the background of right. how I see it and how it played out. Right. So. I saw news about how, just in terms of global warming and how dams are create, creating these smaller sort of like isolated bodies in some ways of water where because they're smaller and they're not flowing, the flow of waters are being controlled by humans that the pools of water are being heated up more than uh, they would be if they were just free flowing. And that's affecting the ecosystems uh, of each body of man-made water. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting that, you know, you brought uh, the idea of dams because there was just an article regarding how the indigenous nations wanted uh, the dams to be taken away because, again, they were not helping in terms of the natural balance um, and also um, their own livelihoods. Yeah. yeah, there's one recently in the Seattle Times mm. where the Nespers tribe talked about removing the, each dam of the Snake River. Mm -hmm. And there's another one in the Spokesman Review where they talked about one dam is just building up a reservoir that and it doesn't it's pretty useless and it hasn't operated since 1958 yeah. so these are really they're really useless in some areas and in other areas they're controlling supposed to be controlling flood mm -hmm. but it's making since since everything is built up and set in one place the sediments are eating away at the river oh wow so yeah, so I think like it's an inch for each year. Mm. And so the, the natural banks that we used to have along the river is being eroded away. And that's one of the things I learned mm. in anthropology. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of, they're really useless and relics. And the spokesman review, the article on that one, there's a town in 20 miles away from Canada, I think. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to sell it for a dollar because... The county or the town doesn't have the operating budget to keep it going. Mm. So just to see that quote where there's where they're willing to sell it for a dollar mm. it just says so much like how how useless everything operates and how kind of like irritating or offensive and 
we're just willing to sell it for a dollar to anybody. Yeah. It's just kind of like, wow, you know, just like irritated and aggravated and just, like, right. you know, just do something. Well, in terms of that offer, let's say, could the indigenous nations there just buy it and operate it the way that they think it ought to be operated? Or I don't know if it's... Yeah, I think that is one yeah, I was hoping that they would mention that. I think the Colville tribe was part of those negotiations, but I'm not sure how that fits in within their you know, tribal government. I don't know how they operate or what they could plan on doing. Right. So. The $1 offer is very enticing, and it's often people do it for commercial value than anything else, commercial in yeah. terms of PR. And... There are a lot of hidden costs that come with buying a dam, I imagine, just like infrastructurally yeah. upkeep and all that. If something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Yeah. So, I think it was like two weeks ago when that article came out. Mm -hmm. The recent one was about the Snake River, and that featured somebody that worked with my dad. Mm. So although it's like people call, like there was a few arguments about this poem, mm -hmm. where like, People were trying to isolate me, like, well, what are you doing? You're just writing it by yourself. What's your purpose? And, right. Like, my purpose is to retell this, retell this story. Mm -hmm. When I see that article, that influenced me to share, well, I'm not isolated because there's a whole tribe, you know, there's a whole movement behind these removals. It's not just one single story. There are people trying to see somebody get to the level of a director mm -hmm. and to keep keep on moving but continue our family struggle or our family resistance to continue it through the tribe that's just a value for what this ideal is going and where and how our life is going to be protected right. preserved right. because I didn't know the background and the, the story behind the poem when I was reading it I was feeling like there are some aspect of the interactions between the indigenous nations themselves with the U.S. government, this idea of petitioning for recognition from a federal government that is, in essence, uh, at least for me, to the in, in relations to the indigenous nations, a foreign nation. And that kind of brought to mind the just the observation that I don't know of any other government that would be petitioning a foreign government for recognition of their own sovereignty, apart from like a supra-governmental body like the UN, right? It would seem like it, yeah. it would make much more sense if the indigenous nations were to go to the UN, obviously. At some of these points, yeah. they, the UN didn't exist, but it just kind of struck me as I learned more and more about different indigenous nations. And, and also in that relationship, in that sort of fighting for recognition, which means, which translates to federal funds, federal resources, that the relationship between indigenous nations fighting to be recognized federally and the 
U.S. federal government, there is a possibility for the U.S. government to be exploiting that to do something like what the British did with India, which is to favor certain nations over others for political reasons. Yeah, that's kind of what, what I was reintroducing into the poem. Mm. Was because I call myself not shady Nespers, and mm. that's like a recognition of not only that we didn't have to sign a treaty mm-hmm. as wine plums, like, but there's record of people saying, well, this person signed the treaty and his name was Stock Lee, but Stock Lee wasn't even there at the treaty of 1855. Mm-hmm. He sent uh, a nephew to see who was negotiating for each tribe. It wasn't wine plum signing. Mm-hmm. And then, but that's put into record. That's kind of hard to like convince people. We well, we didn't sign a treaty. And then I think Henry's dad, Tommy, he was never enrolled anywhere because he didn't want electricity. He didn't want money. All these tribes were offering then this high volume of money, or I don't know what you would call it, mm-hmm. X amount of money. He refused to sign anything. He didn't want to be enrolled, he didn't want to identify with signing away for land. He wanted to preserve just that single spot at Slango Village. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of like the internal battles of well, you know, how do we preserve it if they can't recognize our word or our history? And that's like the internal conflict that happened between the villages and the, the opposition of the treaty tribes that wanted the toy million the people that didn't want the, the money. And then when you look back at history, the, the payout for that amount of money was $3,200. Mm. And there's different sources of where, where one report says $17 million to the general membership, and another one says $21 million to the membership of Yakum Nation. And then, well, which one is the correct one? Whereas if it's $17 million, where the rest of it go? Mm-hmm. It's 21 million, how come it's, how come it's this number? And then there wasn't you know, that many people as today. I think there's 3,000 people at that time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the people that identified as non-treaty are supporters of the Slilo Fish Committee. Mm-hmm. They didn't accept that money. Mm-hmm. My great-godfather didn't accept it. Mm-hmm. He returned it. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, so it's kind of like, there's always that balance effect of how do we move forward for not even recognized or for not even seen as human beings within our own homeland. Mm. But then eventually it was just you know, flooded over. I don't think at the time they weren't thinking of the UN. Like Tommy Con- Tommy Cooney Thompson and Ernie Thompson, two others, Copes and John Wiz, they did go to Washington, D.C. to try to negotiate as collective tribes represent the Slavo Fish Committee, but yeah, it's just kind of like always a loophole where, well, that person is not involved, so he's not acknowledging the space in this, you know, this negotiation that it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of like always that struggle how do we convince people that this is who we are? Because there's even people today that have nothing to do with the space of Slavo Village. Mm-hmm. But are talking on behalf of 
why I'm coming. That's not what we want to stop. Or, you know, it's not what my lineage wanted. I asked this lady, if you're going to continue with this narrative, you have to include all of us, not just one person, one or two people. Because her idea was to sue the federal government and the tribes mm-hmm. for federal funding. And, mm-hmm. But she's not including any of the direct lineages of Salino, which is her talking with for herself. There's always people that, in some cases, try to speak for it and abuse that sacred space. Mm. It's always a hectic battle, struggle, depressing. Yeah, it must be incredibly frustrating because basically it's an interaction between two peoples, generally speaking, who have different ways of valuing different aspects of life. Even money is sort of viewed differently because it's just a vehicle for exchange money. And indigenous nations have their own vehicles for exchange. Some use shells. I don't know what your nation uses. But some do not use a separate vehicle at all. When you're dealing in, in that way, especially in the you know, mid-19th century and whatnot. And it's when, like, philosophical values are different as well. When people do not think about the fact that this is a negotiation between two peoples of who value life differently, how... Um, so there needs to be sensitivity there uh, if the negotiation was to really take place in earnest, which in many ways it wasn't, because... Even though the U.S. government was hiding behind these legal doctrines, the fact is the federal government kind of, depending on who is in power and also, you know, how how they view philosophically and religiously view the indigenous nations, it was never an earnest negotiation. Yeah. And so what I refer to, some circles are Apache Network of Colonized Beings. Mm-hmm. Um, where I got that is in 1952, the Army Corps of Engineers circulated a pamphlet. That pamphlet was sponsored by them in collaboration with Yakima Nation. Mm-hmm. And so Yakima Nation advertises this pamphlet that they're superior fishermen of Salilo. And that lists each tribe Instead of naming Wyambo, the host of the trade center, they put it as other, like 6%, I think. Mm-hmm. And then theirs was like 68%. And then listed all the surrounding tribes less than 20%, I think it was. Mm-hmm. But it's really like a plot where they're trying to convince the court that they're, and it's recorded, that they're. Yakko Nation is superior fishermen of the Columbia River. They use that to justify the value that they saw fit where they're going to get the 21 million. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Like you're going to not only divide people, but you're going to call yourselves superior, and then you're going to label salmon as a commodity. Mm. And then you're going to ask for a handout on top, on top of it. 
So it's kind of irritating to see and to read that. Mm. And it's also, it was five years before the dam even operated. Mm. Where I got that was from Kachin Barber's The Death of Salila Falls. It shows each tribe settlement. So it shows Vesper's tribe settlement. Mm-hmm. It shows Yakko Nation, Mark Springs. And interesting history to review mm-hmm. and how all these dynamics play, play out in history. Right, right. And that's the nuance that's lost to a lot of people because, partly because, you know, it's not a history that's being study outside of people who are concentrating in those studies is not part of general American history that's taught. Again, going back to what I was saying before to the outsider who are are not as well versed in the dynamics in the realization that there are many different peoples who are occupying a track of space and who are sharing the resources around that space and when this other entity, governmental of people, come in and sort of superimposes the idea of governance, there's always the possibility of leveraging the differences between the peoples who are sharing those resources and where there might be some uh, friction, historical friction. It's sad to see and also I think this is something that people of color in general in the U.S. see as well, uh, because we are not monoliths. Uh, we are individuals who sometimes are in some ways almost forced to identify within certain ethnicity, within certain racial groups, because there is systematic prejudice, oppression that forces us to kind of huddle together at the same time when we look closer at our interactions with each other, there are a lot of intra-community conflict and intra-community friction, which um, unfortunately people who want to continue this dynamic of majority culture to minority culture or keeping the minority culture as minority cultures exploit, partly we play into that, not necessarily even uh, on purpose, but because we are at the end of the day, just like the people in the majority culture, we are individuals. And so the aggregate, the sum of all of our interactions, and sometimes, you know, it's very blobby, the movement of, of social movement of people of color, because it's not, it's very difficult to galvanize millions of people and say, well, we're going to sort of speak in one voice because nobody wants to be erased in any sort of way. So, yeah. One of the reasons I kind of picked my poem was your line about status quo, but it's also about the divide and conquer, the idea that when there is something, was something to be done that you know, and, and also the idea of looking at people's actions rather than their words and how as much as, you know, we as poets believe that words matter and they do. Like seeing people's actions beyond their words is also important to know exactly how true they are to their word. So, so I'm going to read that and we can talk about that. Okay. 
So it's called words and actions. When words mattered, you said nothing. When actions needed, you did nil. When you saw me fall, you pushed. When you sensed weakness, you took advantage. Your actions made this world, yet you lament the shortcomings of others. Your inactions paved the way, though you look for strangers to blame. You want a world of substance, yet you worship the glitter of fame. You say you value diversity, yet you always choose the same. Your life is one of lies, while your actions make life lame. When you could uplift, you stay on the same plane. Your drive for status quo has made others' world a disdain. As your safety zone shrinks, you drive to limbs insane. You believe a goal's beyond reach rather than push for change. The only changes you root for are ones that advance your aim. Your charity wants repayment rather than paying betterment forward. You want immediate gratification and leave the debt to others. You can only see your self-worth in the number crushed under your feet. Life is only worthwhile when you can claim others' defeat. Your game is zero-sum because you hate addition. Though the coal is sinking, a rising tide is your perdition. The summit is the ultimate, no matter the elevation. Even if we root in the dirt, you prefer others' affliction. Fool's gold still shimmers with a shine that obscures, eclipsing for ones who avoid enlightenment under the covers. Yeah, that's pretty powerful. Thank you. And then, so I always like hearing words that I use that I never heard of. What is perdition? Uh, I think of it as some kind of uh, Bible-related word. Perdition is like when you're lost. When your soul is lost, it usually, I feel like religious people use it to say you're going to hell. (laughs) But it's just meaning (laughs) that you've lost your, yeah, I guess you lost your direction in life. You just lost, period. Yeah. And for me, this is exciting because I never really get to, like I, can read people's poems, but I never really get to hear the backstory. Yeah, yeah. The root or the, yeah, the influence of the poem, but I don't know, no one's really asked me, well, where'd you come up with this? Where is it? Where does this experience come from? Right. So, yeah, this is very different. This is enlightening. Mm. Yeah. So I like that you shared the status quo. So is this like about self-sabotage? Yeah, it, in some ways it is. It's about how we say we want certain things and, and then we... In the beginning, I was writing from a personal perspective because um, I had the very horrible experience of realizing some of the people I consider were my friends. They said nice things. They said very f- nice philosophical things that I, f- I agree with. But when it came to taking action, they were comp- they were basically hypocrites. So it started as something that's very personal, and then it kind of went on as the poem progressed. I feel like it was much more about 
the outgoing president, the way that, again, he's using, even for his space, he's using all of these rah-rah, you know, I need you, I care about you, but really he doesn't, right? So, uh-huh. and yeah. so this, this hypocrisy that we see, but it also has, as a whole, as we as peoples, there is a sense of self-sabotage, as, as you picked up, because, you know, there are many leaders, just the example you gave of the a woman who is saying that they want to sue on behalf of indigenous people, whereas she's not including a diversity of indigenous peoples when she's suing. So it, you know, it seems like she's just doing it for herself rather than or maybe for all her own people rather yeah. than with a greater good. So I, I think yeah. we see that a lot in various yeah. social movements, whether, you know, if it's, you know, seeing somebody like the outgoing president or our own uh, leaders that we look up to and then realize that they don't necessarily represent the interests that they claim to represent. Yeah. There's like a the nominations or whatever the positions that Joe Biden wants to appoint. And there's Debbie Harlan, where she's in the position to take it, but she stated, well, I don't want it. She stated, I'm not going to get my hopes up for it. Mm-hmm. While there's people, you know, Jesus Bible on the network was one. National Congress of American Indians was another, where they're pushing for her, advocating for her, but yet she doesn't want it. So it's kind of, well, what are you in that position for? You're supposed to lead. You got the position to lead, but now you don't want it. I think a lot of us go through that because, like, you know, Salilo's this large historical place. I didn't get to grow up in it. And then people are putting me out fault because I'm speaking on it, but they say I have to live there in order to have the right to speak on it. Mm-hmm. So one argument I had, well, who made up that rule? Right. That place is still representative of me because it's in my genes. Mm. So that's kind of like where I got the status quo line. Mm. Like, well, you guys are saying we're sovereignty. You guys are saying we're a collective. I often hear we're one heart, one mind. But yet you're using that tribal government to separate me and you by saying, well, you don't have the right because you don't kind of like how I got that line out of the, the poem that I shared. Right, right. It's, it's kind of just identifying how, yeah, I like seeing how others interpret what you experience through how you see status quo. Right, right. And I, I think there is a lot of value which people often dismiss in people who are looking seemingly outside in. Right, because sometimes when you're inside, when you are grew up in a certain experience, you have blind spots. Just like somebody who's looking from outside in will have blind spots as well. I think lived experience is very important because then you have a visceral understanding of something rather than just like a logical, intellectual understanding of something. At the same time, because of that visceral understanding of something, it 
uh, sometimes prevents people from seeing the greater good of something from the outside, a larger perspective of the picture. Um, so I think both are important to have. Obviously, if we find the speaker to be earnest in wanting to address certain issues and also knowledgeable in having researched about uh, the topics that they're talking about. I think, yeah. I think for people who have faced a lot of discrimination, especially from outside groups, there is always this sense of wariness of somebody who comes in, even perceived outsiders, to feel like, well, I'm not sure if we want you to impose your ideas on us because we've experienced that already and it hasn't been good. Yeah, and it's, um, like, I think of my poetry as a form of resolve, and I think that's, like, what you're saying also, mm -hmm. like, how you say life is only worthwhile, I see that as, as a pitch for a resolved dialogue. We can continue to say these words, but we also need to live by them, so that's kind of how I see that line. Because mm. it's always hard, hard to express these, yes, large ideals, and to try to be respectful. Like, yeah, I kind of find it hard to try to see. Well, how do I put it in a respectful way? I think you can include yours well with the enlightenment. So it's like we see. Well, this is what the problem is. This is how I identify. This is how it concludes. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, I think it's it's very difficult when you experience, you know, when again it, it comes to in some ways it, it comes to how different people deal with truth or being truthful in different ways, right? There are people who are comfortable living with those who speak from both sides of their mouths um, or people who do not walk the talk uh, and there are people who who obviously can't stand that it just finds it too it's just untrustworthy and unreliable and at the same time some uh, politics in some ways lies somewhere in the middle because you know politicians do need to be able to persuade people Sometimes they need to say things that sound good to people while feeding them something that might be kind of bitter medicine, but are needed to be fed. So it, I, I feel like the older I get, the more I realize, you know, there's a lot more nuance to those sort of opposite poles of just saying something that you completely do not believe and doing something that's very, very different uh, to then uh, saying exactly what's on your mind. And then there's that great, very large gray area. I do find that a lot of people who do speak from both sides of their mouths, who are completely just hypocrites uh, between their words and their actions, they tend to say things in order to control others' behavior. Also because they are projecting a control 
of something that they cannot uh, have over their own behavior. Like I don't I don't know if you read about Jerry Falwell, you know the uh, yeah that that whole scandal of how so it wasn't him at least but his father and he has continued this legacy of preaching, you know like celibacy and and whatnot a very very strict moral standard that he obviously does not uphold. I feel like it's in a way it's like he's trying to. Control in others what he cannot control in himself. Yeah. So, do as I say, not as I do. Yeah, yeah. At the same time, I find, you know, like just from a psychological perspective, it's very interesting, right? We all have need for control. Need for control over, or perception of control. And yeah. sometimes when we cannot control our own behavior, we control others. Just to have this sense of sense of agency. Yeah. So that to me is is like another added aspect of how we as just human beings um, operate on so many different levels uh, that sometimes we're not aware of ourselves, and and it goes back to I, I'm kind of interested in why people seek fame, seek recognition, seek. Uh, wealth seek you know all these outside things that are recognized from the outside but not necessarily internally like intrinsic value as opposed to extrinsic value in terms of like how our poems relate to each other because I, I feel like you do it is apparent to you why I chose my poem I'm speaking from a very much more, in this poem anyway, much more like philosophical perspective, even though it, the poem itself is rooted in both personal and observational experiences. Yeah. So yeah, you always choose the same, always choose that can relate to how the thing I didn't mention in the poem is nepotism. Mm. So um, the tribal government saying, yeah, we're sovereignty. Or a tribe or a nation. It's always the same families within the leadership roles. A lot of times they don't even have the experience to be in that position or have, I guess, engagement with people to be in that position. Mm-hmm. But they get into those because they only have to be elected by 250 people. Mm-hmm. And half the tribe doesn't show up. Mm-hmm. So they always put it their family to position where they shouldn't be or don't have the experience for and then they operate these large governments, travel governments, continuing nepotism for over a hundred years or so. Mm-hmm. It's really it's hard to find our place. For me, how do I fit into that network when it's not it's not real, it doesn't have any sentiment behind Yeah, I I feel like ultimately, if we do not examine ourselves, we are sort of doomed by our imperfections as human beings. We always have to come back to sort of like 
our foibles as human beings, right? This nepotism thing is obviously not something that's exclusive to the indigenous governments. It is every people, if you ever, you know, <laughs> if you interact with every people, we want to protect our own. We want to protect our survival. So it's in small ways and large, nepotism is something that's very human and even just very essential, not in the sense of needed, but very much the elemental force of a living being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I wrote that, I, for instance, I was thinking about the people who are claiming to be they believe in diversity, but then when it comes to choosing, for instance, these poetry contests, but, you know, in general, any, even governance, when they're choosing people to govern, it's always the majority uh, culture. People are chosen from the majority culture. And then there's the tokenizing of minority peoples. Again, this hypocrisy between, oh, we want diversity. You know, like you go to any organization these days who has a public-facing function, um, you know, there's always that exclaimer that says, you know, we believe in diversity, we want representation, you know, we encourage voices from uh, people of color, things like that. This is what they say, right, this disclaimer in these publications and institutions but when you look at the makeup like I always I I have sort of a a very painful fun in some ways to go to look at mastheads to look at editors of these publications and I am like oh you have an all white um, or all white except for one person editorial staff you have an all-male editorial staff and all-white, except for one, maybe, or two, you know, and you're like, oh, and you're patting yourselves on the back and you're saying, oh, we welcome diverse voices. How welcome can people feel if the gatekeepers do not represent the population that they want to draw from? Like, how sincere can that same... Um, it's not necessarily insincere, but how can that um, claim be translated into real action and real effects? Yeah, I think um, that aligns with just what I just read yesterday. There was a share on Facebook. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the, the lady's name, but she went on to say, there was this blog post. One of the parts that stood out is, well, how do we says the danger that lurks there is being tokenized, being becoming the Indian that is settlers flock to for more info and for more education. Ultimately, it can lead to instances of cultural appropriation and tokenization skewed as respect. I thought that was brilliant because I was trying to find a space where, where people think about just solely attacking the institution. Mm-hmm. But I'm not trying to attack, I'm trying to create dialogue where how do we balance this out what we want our human duty to operate within our own community. I couldn't hear all of what you were saying when you were talking about the quotes. So I, I wonder if you don't mind repeating that. 
You mean what I read yesterday? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it says, however, the danger that lurks, there's being tokenized, becoming the Indian, and the settlers flock to for more people, more education, and ultimately can lead to instances, instances of cultural appropriation, tokenization, skewed as respect. Yeah. Like how I was identified with that is how do we, I do see a lot of groups, a lot of businesses using native identity because it's a universal thing, mm. but also like as a form of appropriation, not selling out as for as not recognizing that our history within this complex thing that it's not all the same, mm-hmm. but to me it's like being, are we being used and how far are we willing to go to earn that fake respect, that fake ideal of humility and unity when we're always at each other's throats. We're not a collective unit when it comes like even within our own community or even voting for the same candidate. Mm. It's not nothing changing. We have this universal idea of sovereignty, but we're not all the same. We're not all the same, we're translating to political power and political energy. Right. And and experience as well, right? Because no people, not, I mean, white people are not a monolith either. So there is a lot of diversity. If we want to relate to each other, we have to relate to each, each other as individuals, but not, not in the individual way of neglecting how structural prejudices have played a role into how people behave within a community identity. So it's we have to relate to people on several different levels rather than say, oh, you know, you, yeah, we don't have, you know, like the Washington Redskins sort of mascot, like the painted uh, indigenous person um, as a mascot, but we're going to have a life indigenous person as serving basically the same role as the life mascot because they are the token. And sometimes it's, it's very tempting, I think, because especially for the peop- for the person or for the uh, some of the, the minority representatives that are becoming the token, you know, where people can say, oh, look, we have an indigenous person because it's very empowering for them, right? Because they're in a position to represent their own cultures, but because indigenous, this, this U.S., our you know, landmass represents over 500 federally recognized, but there are so many more nations and so, so many different cultures. And within that, so many different various sects or, or tribes within the nations themselves. And again, various different cultures. So it's difficult to avoid tokenizing when, you know, you have a majority culture represented and just like one or two slots for minority people representation it's always going to be tokenizing it's always going to be like a caricature of the culture that that one person is supposed to represent because no one person can possibly represent an entire culture that's just ridiculous yeah 
representation is something that I, I always think about. And then appropriation also is something that I think about, especially as a writer, because, you know, we write what we know and part of what we know is what we experience. And so if we're interested in different cultures, we're going to experience those cultures and that experience ultimately will come into our writing. So in today's day of cultural appropriation or talk of cultural appropriation, there's no clearly defined line of when you know, something that's part and partial of your own experience that you're writing becomes cultural appropriation, unless you're veer into very the far end of it where, you know, like, like a well-known white singer, for instance, put in box braids in their hair and they suddenly are called edgy and they're, they're uh, using hip-hop music to make themselves popular and, you know, derive income from it, whereas the people who created that music or created certain cultural styles are being starved of that same opportunity to make their voices heard. So cultural appropriation is something that I find really interesting as a topic of discussion that I don't feel like is discussed in enough nuance. Yeah, I think this is pretty long, but she was what I read. And it was like, how do we find the balance? And then how do we find the words to state it without thinking somebody's going to be offended or triggered by it? We're not saying not share, but we're also saying not to share too many things. Because this thing, our life and our songs and our culture, our, however people see it, is not meant to be shared with everyone. And I think people are getting moving up into certain areas where they're crossing that line and they're sharing maybe a little too much for all these things for money mm. or claim or for whatever reason. It's hard to convince people that there needs to be a balance of it. Mm. That's, that's like hard to do. Like how do you tell people that without offending them? And how do you state it without even, or how are we going to move forward? So there's always that trying to please everyone but also at the same time you want to be that person that is separate has a right to be dignified and share what and who we are yeah yeah and again it goes back to the individual because we each have our own motivations when we are being sort of spotlighted as that token <laughs> or as that you know minority representation some people will play that up while others will use that opportunity to represent. But those two instances sometimes are hard to tell one from the other. Yeah. Um, so this same poem, I read it at Yakima Coffee House Poets. Mm. And then somebody from the 350, 350 org heard about it. They wanted me to read it birthday. Somebody in their group knew me because they went to our workshop, mm -hmm. and our voting thing, mm -hmm. and then he offered it. He said, oh yeah, you can speak, you can be the headliner. And then I let him go on and on. 
was like, oh, so tokenized, bro. <laughs> so it kind of ended the conversation. It was like, he didn't realize, he thought he was coming as a friend. Mm-hmm. But he didn't realize that he's, you know, he's being used as, you're being used as an ally and you're asking me to, to do all these things. But you didn't ask what I thought about the group. But you didn't, he didn't even tell me who, oh, you're working for, who you're working with. Mm-hmm. You're just offering this, the speaking world. He didn't even say who it was for. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, like I knew who invited and stuff. Mm-hmm. But like for him just to be like excited and say all these things like oh, what I could possibly do. Mm-hmm. Like he didn't, he didn't ask like if I wanted to, but <laughs> he just like, assumed I was, you know, assumed I was going to do it. But then the shutdown happened, so it, was, it, right. didn't, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think of just connecting it with what I experienced with our work. Yeah, I think we as artists, obviously, we do want our words to be out there, and we are looking for opportunities to be presented to to have the spots to to speak our uh, our truths. But not every opportunity is the same. And not every opportunity is worth all while. And especially is when we're starting out, it's very, you kind of are grabbing at whatever opportunities come. And, but I think we always need to think about what is worth our while, how we are being perceived. I mean, it's not like we're not going to make mistakes in that in respect, but to, to be more mindful of taking the opportunities that come to us and paying more attention of what is actually being offered. In conclusion, I would love for you to tell us uh, about any favorite virtual open mics that you might recommend to our readers uh, or our listeners and also how they can follow you and find out more about what you're doing. Yeah, I recommend the New York Mm. Poets Cafe. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not sure if I said that right, but I usually get on there on Thursdays. And the LA Poet Society is one I like getting on. Mm. Those are the main two that I like. Mm. Mm. That's wonderful. The one, the one out in Texas, I forget what they're they're called. Oh, uh, yeah. Bwams. Yeah, that one. Yeah. So, yeah, I got asked featured for that one is because I read on. LA Poets Society, so I don't mind being a featured reader. That opportunity is mm-hmm. heard on this. Mm-hmm. We did post open mic, but we never they went virtually. I don't know if we'll do one, but I would like to create like one shutdown is over. Just try to get people to come and be a featured featured reader or host. Mm-hmm. I'm always looking for new people to collaborate with share or people just want me to read i'm open to reading it mm. reading poems give feedback you can follow me at tyrone underscore ym it's w-y-m mm-hmm. my facebook page is ym publishing mm. yeah this was different because i was able to share that background story there's not too many other times where i get to 
or another's background story of how they write a poem. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's incredible. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah. I love hearing the background stories of poems because, you know, when we go read, we never really, I mean, we can do a preamble, but it's never in depth, you know. <laughs> yeah. So thank you so You're much. Welcome. Thank you for your time. Yeah, I, I really welcome. appreciate it. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either on poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a safe and healthy week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.